This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. We find ourselves right in the middle of a series called New You. We, we started it last week, and most of us this past week celebrated a new year, uh, the beginning of a brand new year. And there are rare moments within the context of a year that we actually engage the idea that life can be different. Life can be different than I've known it. I've known it to be this way. It's evident to me that the way that life has been has been broken and is not working. And it is unique that around the start of a new year, we embrace the idea that we can be different. That life can be different. You see, the real issue there is life itself. And we have to more carefully identify what life is because it is in moments like these that we become zeroed in on the fact that life is a little bit more than breathing. Life is greater than having a job and a home and a routine that I walk through every 24 hours. Life is bigger than eating right. Life is bigger than all of this. The great John Wesley encountered that idea. John Wesley was a a famous preacher. He actually started the Methodist Church, and I know some of you guys, you have some history there. Wesley uh, preached all over the UK and America, and on a, a sea voyage, his ship hit a, a turbulent patch of water in a storm. And as he tells the story, Wesley was in the underbelly of the ship and he noticed that a a small group of Moravians were quite comfortable in this moment. And he wasn't. He was actually finding no comfort, no solace, no hope in his relationship with Jesus. And he realized that something was wrong, that although he had spent years proclaiming the Word of God, that many people had been changed as he administered the Word of God, that there was something that was not right in his life. And one of those Moravians became a good friend of his and told him, Wesley, don't leave the ministry. Continue to preach faith until God gives you faith. And in his journal, several years later, after dealing with the tension of knowing that there was something greater than what he has, he recorded at 5 o'clock in the morning as he opened the Bible. 
And he began to read about God's great love for him and the promise that God has for him. That his heart became strangely warm. And at once, he was confident in God's love for him and God's ability to save him. It's at that moment that Wesley would contend that his life really began. You see, because there's a greater issue at work for us. I want to tell you kind of the theme statement for this series as we go through New You. It is this, that Jesus didn't make die to make you a better version of yourself. Jesus didn't die to make you a better version of yourself. He died to make you new. And last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17. That if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, those things that were past are gone, and all things, he is made new. And it's interesting to me that around this time of year, we become captivated with becoming better versions of ourselves. Better versions of ourselves, but better fails you. Look at this version or this verse out of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, there are a few observations that I would make out of this text. You see, the first thing is that better doesn't solve the problem. That's the first thing in your notes. Better doesn't solve the problem. Trying to be better doesn't solve the problem when the problem is sin. It's just a better version of the same sin. Better doesn't solve the problem. As a matter of fact, the second thing in your notes is that Jesus alone can solve the problem. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Jesus alone can solve the problem of sin. And we talked about this last week, that at this point in the year, all of the things that we identify and make resolutions about typically are sin issues. And we're not just going to get better in a sin issue when ultimately, why would we do that when God can make us new? Jesus can solve the problem. The second thing or the third thing that I would point out is that he solves a problem with a free gift that can't be earned. The gift of the solution to our sin is not something that we earn. It is a free gift. The Bible tells us right there plainly that it is not from ourselves. It is a free gift from God. 
We, we cannot boast or make you know, light of the gift or heavy of ourselves. All right, we're, we're not intended to lift ourselves up as, as we look at this gift and say, look at what God. No, the, what has happened is God has given you something that was free. It was free to me. Y'all get that? It costs God, but it was free to me. It cost God his son, but it was free to me. It is a free gift. The last thing that I would notice out of this passage is that this gift is meant to be shared, not hoarded. And I think this is something that, especially here in, in America, in, in our Americanized version of Christianity, this idea that we have a, a personal relationship with God that doesn't affect the rest of our person. All right, That is a not biblical idea. Because it tells us this, that, that, we were, that we were given this gift, not by works so that no one could, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for us in advance to do. So God is giving us a gift with the intention of us actually doing something with it. It is not for us to put on a mantle and to look at. It is not for something for us to just cherish and, and hide under a bushel. No. It is for us to let the light shine. There is an intent and a purpose to the gift that God has given us. So as we begin to really put some rubber to the road as to what it means to be new, what does new you look like? I want to go to a passage of Scripture that would, I think, be the least visited in, in this context. But I like this, Ezekiel 36. And I want to use this text to show you that God has a plan to make you new. And that plan is not as simple as it has been thought of in the past, but it is as beautiful and wonderful as it has ever been presented. Let's look at this, what God says to Ezekiel in chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Last week I told you sin leaves us dirty, but God comes to clean us. Sin leaves us broken, but God comes to heal. God is saying to Ezekiel, I find you in your sin, but I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Often the Bible describes us as having different parts. There's different parts of us. Often it is, comes out in three different ways, that we are body, soul, and 
spirit. There are sometimes heart, soul, mind, and strength. Other ways that we are described as being a different person that is the same. And in this passage, the Bible tells us of a plan that God has to make us new. The plan of God to make us new. It is quite simply this, that new life, and this is in your notes, equals a new heart and mind plus a new spirit. This is a new life. This is God making us new. The Bible says in, in this passage that God, God will come and give us a, a new heart and give us a new spirit. So here we have the Bible describing us as body, soul, and spirit. And God is saying, I'm going to come and give you a new soul. I'm going to come and give you a new spirit. I'm going to make you new in those areas. And just to kind of explain what I would kind of pull that all together for you. I would describe when the Bible talks about our heart and our mind, that, that, that is really looking towards the soulishness of man. The emotional root of man, all right, our, our soul. So heart, mind, soul being very used constantly in an interchangeable way. And in this passage in verse 26, we see what God means now when he says, I will give you a new heart. The Bible says, I will, I will take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Now, most of us know that we're alive we're alive today because we have a heart of flesh. It's beating in there, right? But that's not exactly what this passage of Scripture is pointed to. That's not really what it's pressing on. It's, it's talking about the capacity that God has when he works with us, moves inside of us to have an impression on us. So when God is dealing with a heart of stone, his spirit moving against a heart of stone makes no progress. When God is trying to direct us and comes against a heart of stone, the heart of stone doesn't move. But God says, I will take that heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in. What he is saying there is that we will now be able to be moved by Jesus. It's in your notes. That we will be able to be moved by Jesus. That God will be able to have an effect and move us. So all of a sudden, we'll start crying at commercials. Out of nowhere. Because we'll look and there will be something on there that breaks our heart. And our heart has never broken before. We've never thought that way. We've never reasoned that way. We've never looked at life this way. We'll see a homeless man and think, wow, what can I do? Because God now has the capacity to move against our heart. We'll see a great need and God has now the ability to impress on us the decision, the leading to go meet that need. We'll have a heart of flesh that God will be able to move us. And then Jesus says, I will put my spirit in you and you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A new spirit 
means that God now has the ability to lead us. To lead us. The Holy Spirit alive in us is the capacity of God to lead us on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. The Bible tells us in Romans that we were born under Adam. That we were born with a broken spirit, a sinful spirit, a, a lost spirit, and that that spirit is bent to be bad. How many of y'all have kids? How many of y'all know you don't have to teach your kids to be bad? <laughs> right? You don't have to give them lessons in how to do it wrong. It's because we're broken. Our spirits are broken from the time we come into this world. We are born under Adam. But God says, I will put a new spirit in you, and you will be able to follow me, that God would be able to lead us. But there's a problem with that equation. There's a problem with that. And it is this, that new life is contained in an old body. I'm going to say that again. New life is contained in an old body. I want to go back to a verse that we looked at last week and unpack that just a little bit more, Philippians 3.12. The Apostle Paul says this, I press on to take hold of that which Christ took, Jesus took hold of me. There's the idea in this passage that Jesus has already taken hold of this. He's already done the work. The work has been accomplished. But now I have to press on to actually get to where Jesus is holding the work that he's already finished. I press on, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on so that I can take hold of that which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of for me. It's a tension that we live in because our bodies, our physical existence is in a perpetual state of momentum. Everything that you're doing is gaining momentum or losing. Just think about it this way. We're driving down the car. Most of us like to think about our spiritual lives like this. We've been putting gas and engine and momentum behind a direction that often is going the wrong direction. And when we turn the car off, what happens to the car? It keeps going. Because there's momentum going that direction. It's carrying itself that direction. Just because we stopped adding fuel to the fire doesn't mean that it's going to immediately stop. There's a momentum in our lives that's carrying it that way. I was on staff at a church in Tennessee, and one of the leaders that worked under me actually was a researcher at the University of Chattanooga. He worked in agricultural research. And one of the things that he did back in the 70s was he studied as Um, more refined sugars and flours were coming to the market. He studied a a vast study between the differences of those foods on your bodies towards natural organic foods. And in the middle of that study, he made the decision that he would never eat refined sugar ever again. 
ever. And so this guy, for 30 years when I met him, had only been eating natural fruits. That's it. And I talked to him about it one day. I was like, that sounds like the hardest thing in the world to do. Because I love a Snickers bar. And I can't imagine not ever being able to eat a Snickers bar. And he, he said, you know, really, for the first couple years, yeah, it was really hard. It's because for the first couple years, my, my body had just, I, I'd grown so used to that sweet taste, that that artificial sugar, processed sugar taste. And I was used to Cokes and, and candy bars. And he goes, but somewhere about year two, three, four, somewhere in there, I made a shift. And he said, I can tell you today that if I sit down and eat an orange, if I sit down and eat an orange, it tastes, the, the physical experience of eating an orange is similar to what I would have had when I ate a Snickers bar. It tastes just as good. It is just as powerful to my palate. It's like, you're full of it. <laughs> no way. But that's true, isn't it? We've all dieted before. And you go through those first few weeks and you're like, oh, this is horrible. I hate it. And then you start to feel better. And then your body starts to respond to it. And the things that are chemicals inside of your body that control when you crave food and all that stuff starts to align to what you're doing. And it gets easier because our bodies live in a natural state of momentum, which is why. When the Bible discerns to us and gives us the Ten Commandments, it tells us that fathers, your sins will be visited upon your children for three or four generations. And that sounds like a judgment statement. It sounds like God saying, I'm going to punish your kids for what you do. I'm going to take it out on them, but it's not. It's simply the fact that our behavior has a momentum. And when you start something in a family, it is quite difficult to stop it. So God says when you introduce this, it's going to take generations to get it out. Because our bodies are living in a perpetual state of momentum. When I used to coach track, we tell our, our students, you, you've got three weeks, and you're going to hurt every day. It's going to feel so bad when you get out of the car. That first step out is going to hurt. But if you'll make it through the first three weeks, you'll start to feel better. And see, what happens in life is God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. All of a sudden, we have the capacity to be moved by God and to be led by God, but we're in the middle of an old body that has its ways, a pattern of life that we have set that was most likely sinful. And often, God comes and gives us that news so that we can now be conformed into the image of Jesus, that we can go through a refining process to be made new so that we can do what the Apostle Paul said, I can press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of for me. So how do we, 
live out the new in the middle of an old body. How do we do that? The first thing that I would tell you today is that we must embrace that the new will require adjustments and sacrifices. New life will require adjustments and sacrifices. God is not going to come to you and make you new so that you can keep on living the same way. I mean, it is epically important that you embrace that. God will make you new, but it is going to require you to make adjustments and sacrifices. Ephesians 4.1 says this. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. In other words, God is calling you. There's a destination. Now we have to rise up and go, okay, I'm going to respond to God's call. You've made me new. Now I have to live in the newness. I have to make the adjustments and the sacrifices. Number two, accept that you're likely going to fail. Accept that you're likely going to fail. Now I'm not going to preach some like hoorah thing up here today. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to do is to help you understand what it's going to look like to become free. And it is not often as simple as a moment. It is more often a process. That God is going to work things out of our lives and then he's going to put his hand on this and then we're going to have to respond to the newness that God brings in that area. Look at this verse, Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous fall seven times, but they rise again. But the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. I love that verse. I love that verse because it tells me we're going to blow it. We're going we're gonna to mess it up. And you know what? The difference between people that last and people that don't last in following Jesus is, it's not that the people that last actually get it all right. It's that they get their butts up. When they fail, when they screw it all up, they get up and try again. The righteous fall seven times, but they get back up. But for the unrighteous, when they fall, calamity strikes. It's over with. I'm done. The third thing that I would tell you that we need to do if we're going to live in the newness that God wants to give us is that we need to stop feeding the wrong person. The Apostle Paul in his writing seems extremely familiar with this idea. That, that God has made me new on the inside. And now I wrestle with a body that is broken and sinful. At one point he calls himself a man who wrote over two-thirds in volume the New Testament. Influenced the spreading of the gospel and the reason that we're in the United States 
in a Western world sharing Jesus. Called himself a wretched man. Oh, wretched man that I am. This is a verse that the Apostle Paul penned in his letter to the Romans. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. In other words, that we can follow our flesh. We can follow our body. But when we do... We have our minds and our lives are set on what it desires. But the Bible tells us that God has freed us and given us a new spirit, and now we can follow that spirit. And the last thing that I would say is let your weakness have a voice. Let your weakness have a voice. Most of us try to cover up our weakness. Most of us try to hide our weakness and try to silence it. But here's what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 19. He said to me, or Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness. So that Christ's power may rest on me. What does he say about his weakness? I will boast in it. It's not going to be silent. I'm going to talk loudly about my weakness. I'm going to let you know that I'm quite incapable. I'm weak. Let your weakness have a voice because if you continue to let your weakness be off to the side and tell it to be silent, eventually it's going to become a very loud voice on the inside and it might just dominate you. I don't think there's one person that I identify with more when we start to talk about new life more than maybe Johnny Cash. And so I wanted to show this video because I'm going to pull it together at the end. This is just a quick glimpse into the life of Johnny Cash. Would you guys watch this with me? We're all shaped by our upbringing and environment. And Johnny Cash was no different. He grew up around church, gospel music, and radio. He lived in a poor family during the Depression era, and at the age of five, he was already working in the cotton fields with his family. Johnny was a creative child, a constant dreamer, drawn to music from the very beginning. This often put him at odds with his hard-working, blue-collar father. Johnny idolized his older brother Jack and was devastated when he died in a tragic sawmill accident. Because of these things, Johnny Cash wanted to leave the hurt of home, looking for freedom and success in a life as a musician. He quickly found both. Johnny soon met Sam Phillips of Sun Records and plunged into the life of a touring musician. He met with immediate success and was soon on the road more than home. In his autobiography, Cash, he said, my affair with pills had already begun. It quickly became all-consuming, eating me up for the next decade or so. What started with an occasional pill to stay awake and a beer to calm down quickly mastered him and became an addiction to alcohol, amphetamines, and barbiturates. Perhaps as a way to deal with his success, a taxing life as a performer, his strained relationship with his wife and kids, 
or his continual running from the Lord Jesus. He yielded to the temptation all around him and worshipped his music and the various substances that sustained him. Johnny Cash said this of his addictions, the first and perhaps worst thing about it was that every pill I took was an attempt to regain the wonderful, natural feeling of euphoria I experienced the first time. And there was not a single one of them, not even one among the thousands that slowly tore me away from my family and my God and myself that ever worked. Bit by bit, Johnny Cash destroyed his life. He wrecked numerous cars and was arrested for bringing a massive quantity of amphetamines across the border from Mexico. He began canceling shows and eventually whole tours. He even carelessly burned several hundred acres of the Los Padres National Wildlife Reserve and became the only individual sued by the state of California. Worst of all, he completely wrecked his marriage and left his four daughters virtually fatherless. One thing you didn't see in the movies is that as he hit rock bottom, Johnny Cash decided to take his own life. As a kid, he had explored the depths of Nickajack Cave, an immense abandoned cave system that was about to become a water reservoir. Many people went into the cave, got lost, and died over the years. Johnny crawled into Nickajack Cave to lose himself and to die. He crawled for hours until his flashlight went out. He described the experience like this. The absolute lack of light was appropriate, for at that moment I was as far from God as I have ever been. My separation from Him, the deepest and most ravaging of the various kinds of loneliness I'd felt over the years, seemed finally complete. Then, thinking he was near death, he said, I felt something very powerful start to happen to me, a sensation of utter peace, clarity, and sobriety. There in Nickajack Cave, I became conscious of a very clear, simple idea. I was not in charge of my own destiny. I was going to die at God's time, not mine. Johnny Cash miraculously crawled out on his hands and knees in the total darkness. When he got out, he said, I was ready to commit myself to God and to do whatever it took to get off drugs, and I wasn't lying. Cash went on to say, Eventually, slowly, with relapses and setbacks, I regained my strength and sanity and I rebuilt my connection to God. I was able to face an audience again, performing straight for the first time in more than a decade. God had done more than speak to me. He had revealed His will to me through other people, family, and friends. The greatest joy of my life was that I no longer felt separated from Him. Now He is my counselor, my rock of ages to stand upon. Some of us today can identify with the story of Johnny Cash. We can identify with hitting rock bottom. That we did everything within our own power to blow our own life up and to bust it. We surrendered what was good for what wasn't. Life was a broken mess. Some of us in here 
might have a different identity. Maybe you might identify with John Wesley. Maybe today you've been trying to be a better person. It's not that you don't know about Jesus or that you don't think God's real, any of that. You just have been trying to be good. And in the middle of the storms, you find very little comfort in Him. These two men, decades apart, centuries apart, experienced the same miracle that God offers to us. And that is new life. That in the middle of a broken mess, God can come and give us a new heart and a new spirit. Because it takes that. It takes new life alive in us for us to be new. Let's pray. Today, God, there's some of us in this room who, God, in all of our failures and weaknesses, we, we know we've blown it. God, we know that we've missed the point. We've missed the mark. For, for some of us in the room, it's not that at all. We've been trying to be good. We've been trying to do the right thing. We've been, we've been doing all that, and it's just feeling empty. For all of us, you promise life. And we believe life happens on the inside, that life is something that comes out from a, a new heart and a new spirit. And so we look to you today, God. And we ask that by your grace and mercy for those of us that are broken messes and those of us that really, really, really have been trying, but it's just not good. For all of us, that by your mercy, you would come and make us new. So with nobody looking around, everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed, let's be still for just this moment. Is there anybody today that would say, hey, I'm, I'm that guy that's been breaking everything. Or I'm the person that's been trying really hard. I've been trying to do the right thing. Maybe you're just like Wesley. And you, you look at your life and you go, there's just something missing. It's not right. As much as I want it to be, it's just not right. Maybe you're like Cash. It's rock bottom. And you want to crawl in a cave and die. But today, there's hope in Jesus and there's hope for you. So if that's you today and you want to experience new life, whether you're the person that's been trying really hard or you're the person that's just been blowing it, if you want new life today, Jesus can do that in your heart and in your spirit today. You don't have to wait at all. All the Bible says is that we need to confess and believe in him, that we have to respond to him. So if that's you today, 
and you want to respond to the invitation of God and experience new life, would you raise your hand right now? I'm not going to ask you to do anything else except to raise your hand. That's awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. Is there anybody else today that would say, that's me? Well, let's pray. God, for those that just raise your hands and those that are in the room that we feel that way today, God. We look to you in hope and know that you have the power to resurrect us on the inside, to give us a new heart. We trust in you. By the power of Jesus, we trust in you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.